Hello and welcome to Thriving in Intersectionality, a podcast created to help you learn from professionals in the workplace who have multiple intersectional identities, from ethnic minorities, veterans transitioning into the workforce, individuals with disabilities, parents, and so many more. My name is Lola Adeyemo. I am the CEO of EQI Mindset and the founder of the nonprofit Immigrants Incorporate Inc. I work with organizations to build inclusive workplaces. This podcast was built to amplify the voices of leaders and immigrants in the corporate workplace and to give insights and guidance so people can move past their barriers and advance in their professional careers. Through interviews and solo episodes, I'm going to examine this global world of work. I know that you can learn a thing or two from my guests who have a range of experiences and stories to share. Join me as we meet new people who are successfully navigating the corporate space. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Thriving in Intersectionality podcast. This is an inclusive workplace podcast where I showcase and amplify the voice and work of professionals from different intersections who are thriving in the workplace. Courtney Torres, my guest for today, is no exception. She's an established professional, a mom, an entrepreneur with over two decades of experience in community activism. Executive leadership and education is also at the top of our experience list, and she's recognized as an expert in leadership and human development. As a coach, a consultant, an advocate, and a writer, she has dedicated her career to supporting organizations and leaders in realizing their visions. Courtney is an active member of the International Coaching Federation, ICF, and a professionally trained coach. She holds a BA in Politics and Religious Studies, a MA in English Language and Literature, and a MA Ed in Education, Leadership, and Supervision. I am excited to have a conversation with her today and uh, leverage some of the insights that she has accumulated over the last two decades. Thank you. Please share, review, and follow us on social media platforms. Hi there, ambitious immigrant professionals. This is Lola, your host on the Thriving in Intersectionality podcast. Are you ready to supercharge your career? There are so many layers to doing just that, and that's what we're here for. Join our membership platform today for game-changing career coaching, expert resources and guidance, and get responses in real time to some of the issues and questions that you're going through in the workplace right now. We're not just breaking barriers, we're building bridges to advancement and career success. Visit immigrantsincorporate.org slash membership to sign up today and let's take your career to new heights. Join the membership platform today. Visit immigrantsincorporate.org slash membership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Thriving in Intersectionality podcast. My guest today is Courtney. Hi, Courtney. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I am in sunny California that is rainy today. 
Uh, but we can't complain because this is California winter. Because <laughs> right. it's sunny here, but like a 30 degree summer, a 30 oh. degree sunny where I oh, am. Okay. Where are you currently located? I am in Maryland, the southern part. Courtney, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? And I want you to highlight your intersectionalities, and right. identity categories. All right, well, I'll start there. My name is Courtney Torres, and I am a Black Indigenous woman and a mother of adult children. Um, and I think if there was something that is not on the surface of who I am that I think is important is that I am an instrument for positive change. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I love how you said mother to adult children. Yes. Because I think um, my kids are 10... 10, 7, and 3 now. Mm. And something that I learned to when I was building a community for myself as a new parent was that there is a difference. Mm-hmm. When you have little kids, you know, there's no easier, there's no right or wrong, but it's just what you're dealing with when you have adult kids or teenage kids or yeah. under 10. It's just very different. And it's just important to have the right people, the right insights um, as you go through that. So thank you for sharing yeah. that. Their, their problems and their circumstances and everything just get more complex the older they get. Right? <laughs> really? I shouldn't yeah. look forward to some relief yet. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't hold the burden, but at, but they when they're coming, like, you know, the things that they're challenged with are like bigger challenges than like, you know, somebody taking their toy on the playground. It's more yeah. like more adult issues so but it's all fun like i wouldn't change it for the world i know my my 10 year old was explaining to his seven year old sister that she was saying what's the difference between a teenager and an adult and he said oh a teenager is 16 and an adult (laughs) is 17 and above oh okay i'm like if only it were that easy I like to tell people that um, really adulthood starts like, you know, after 25, because they say that, you know, your frontal lobe doesn't really develop until between, you know, 23 and 26. So my oldest daughter just turned 26. I I gave her a big like, welcome to adulthood party. Like, (laughs) you're finally an adult to make them. It takes the pressure off 18 because that's that's not really an adult. I love it. And then each child is different too. You know, Mm -hmm. some kids are ready to step into that or maybe their career path takes them into adulting (laughs) earlier than others. So, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, we could talk about parenting all day. (laughs) And I know that would also come up. I'm sure I will have some questions around that uh, because I love when I get to chat with professionals, uh, black women professionals who are building their career, building successful careers. And I've done the whole nine years, basically, you know, raised kids and building your career. So let's dive into your career path. Mm -hmm. Um, This is part of an episode I'm releasing for Black History Month. So I'm excited that my first guest for the month is a Black woman, because I think as somebody who works in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, um, we are trying to also amplify some of these challenges specifically for Black women, not just Mm -hmm. women overall, but Black women. And so I'm, you know, very uh, much looking to hear about your background and your journey so far. How did you get here? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Like whenever I try to like roll back to the moment to start the story of how I got to where I am, I I generally want to start with like college. But the, the how I got to college, I think, is equally as important. I'm from a city um, when where when I was growing up, it was predominantly black and had been for a number of years. Um, my mother was working as a legal secretary for somebody who was in this larger um, uh, law firm in San Francisco. And it just so happened that one time she was working on the weekend and I went in with her, I was 12, and I met her boss. And um, his name was John Knox. Um, he is like a legend in the community where I'm from, which is Richmond, California. And um, he took a, you know, a very natural, healthy interest in my intellectual development. And over the years, he would start to check in with me, like through my mother. Um, when I got to high school, he would take me to lunch. And I felt like eventually he started really plugging his college. He went to a small, small liberal arts college in Los Angeles called Occidental, where I ended up going. But I know for a fact I would not have gone to that school had it not been for him because I hadn't even heard of it. And most people mm. hadn't. Um, but it was a highly selective school. Um, I went and I went with a very defined plan to go to the FBI. Like I knew I was going to be pre-law and, you know, so I went in and I was a political science major and it didn't take long. I don't even think a week I was there before I realized like learning about NATO and weapons and all those things really like didn't interest me. So, really? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I was like really gung-ho for the law part of it, right? But, um, but all, like the po politics side of it, I realized even though, you know, I was good at it, like at all, you know, in, in high school, I was, you know, student council and like was very engaged in that way. So I thought that like naturally that would be where I was pulled towards. And when I got there, I really was not as drawn to that part of being a politics major as the other part, like the law part. In fact, in my sophomore year, I really quietly changed my major to religious studies. Um, and that was kind of brought on by like years of being involved in the California State Baptist Youth and Young Adult Convention. And I was a, a officer. And, um, and, and so I was like, oh, I'm going to be a missionary like my grandmother and everybody else in my family. But when my dad saw the report card and he was like, why are all these religious studies classes on here? <laughs> And so I had to change it back to politics. So I ended up graduating uh, with a, a degree in politics and religious studies, which okay. I can't say is a bad thing. Um, and uh, but when I graduated, I was five months pregnant, which is, you know, here would be the pen where we talk about things that might happen to women that might not be as impactful for men. Um, so I went back home so that I could have the support of my parents. And so I enrolled in graduate school and I became a substitute teacher. And that is where I think, you know, kind of my life changed and my career as an um, educational leader really kind of took off. Wow. Oh, my gosh. OK, so this is the, the fun part of these conversations that I like <laughs> to dig into, because, again, I interview professionals who are doing so much, who are accomplished. And I think a lot of the times we never get to really dig into how did you get here? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the real learning, you know, for professionals is just understanding all of the transitions you had to make, all of the decisions, how you don't have to have all the answers like right now, this moment, mm -hmm. um, but you make the choices based on what you have and you keep right. going. Um, so I love hearing about, I went to school to study this and then <laughs> I switched to this. Um, and so what would you say your 
support system was like in terms of making those choice, different choices for your program in college? You know, it's interesting. Um, later, when I went back to graduate school, I went back for English. And I believe now that I just really should have been an English major to begin with, because that was my interest, right? I was really interested. I read and I wrote all the time, like all through school. Like when I was in high school, I wrote two plays that we ended up getting the school to let us, you know, produce, like, and we had, you know, we raised money for the Black Student Alliance. Um I think those decisions were really heavily influenced by my father. Like he, you know, was a military man and um, an entrepreneur himself, which, you know, has a lot to do with, you know, the career that I'm currently on. Um, But he was really serious about me being, you know, having a major that was going to lead to some kind of like work that he felt that would be, um, I think, uh, beneficial to me financially, you know, and to be able to not necessarily have like the struggles of, say, a teacher. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he wouldn't have to worry about a daughter who is a lawyer as much as a daughter who's making at that time. I think I was getting paid $38,000 a year to be a teacher. So um, I think a lot of my decisions then and even now have a lot to do with, you know, my parents. Mm-hmm. Um But so the switch back to politics, I think, was helpful only in that, you know, I ended up becoming a teacher of the humanities. So English, um, social studies and um, and then 10 years as a teacher. And then I became a principal and and sometimes as a principal and then went on to be a superintendent of a very small school district before um, deciding to be full time as a consultant to leaders, um, really focusing on um, strategic planning and DEI and um, change leadership. Okay. So, so just following your career path. So the teaching and graduate school, did you say you went yeah, to graduate school? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what was your graduate degree in? English. English. So I got, but I, in that time I ended up getting, so when I was, yeah, I went back home. I I enrolled in school, which is a degree in English letters and literature. And then I started teaching as a substitute teacher, but then I did go on to get my credential. And then I started teaching full time um, as an English teacher um, with that English degree and then stayed there probably another eight years um, for a total of 10 before I started um, as a principal. And I was a principal of one of the schools I was teaching in. It was my first principal job. Oh, wow. Okay, that's awesome. So now, um, what do you currently do? How did you mm-hmm. move from that teaching phase to what you do now? Yeah, I am currently a um, consultant, um, primarily in those three, you know, with specialization in um, strategic planning and DEI, anti-racism and and change leadership. And I tend to work with school districts, organizations, nonprofits who are looking to really build the capacity of the leadership in their building or create structures that will help them run more um, efficiently. And I think I got here from, you know, in the time that I spent as a school principal, you know, it, I think anybody in any job can recognize that there's parts of your job that that you don't like, especially if mm-hmm. you're working in like a nine to five, you're working for somebody else. Right. Um, and so I had an executive coach who said to me, um, I want you to think about the parts of this job that you like the most. And I think that was the first time when I really felt like I had the agency to really say, yeah, I really don't like doing that part. That part, you know, it's, it, I don't, like doing, you know, I don't know, 
suspending kids. I don't like doing the behavior part, right? But I really like coaching the teachers and going into their classrooms and giving them feedback and watching them grow. Um, and I also really liked the, the 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 open classroom space where I was the teacher to teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And and those were the things I knew very early on in my career that I liked the most. And so having that in mind, eventually like my um, coaching business has become one in which I am helping adults grow, right? Where I am kind of training the trainers, working with leaders of organizations or leaders of schools so that they can be better in their craft and and build their their, um, professional leadership skills. Um, to better lead their, you know, better lead their their buildings. But it was not like a straight line. It was like we um, being in the principalship for a decade and and then knowing that I would be able to like have um, people who I worked with where I could use their assets and distribute leadership and really focus on the parts that I liked the most, really build up those skills. And then when it was time for me to transition out of working in schools and, and working full time as a consultant, I already knew what I wanted to do and had already polished those skills in, you know, in, in my job, embedded, getting, getting that experience. Okay. So right now in your work, are your clients primarily in the education uh, world or do you have corporate or uh, nonprofit you mentioned? Mm-hmm. So I think I think you said it. I think they are primarily in the education world, but I also do. Right. Because, you know, that's where, you know, that's where I that's where I I grew as a leader. That's where I've learned, you know, most of the skills. But then I know that there are so many things that I do that are transferable, that I do have clients who are in nonprofit or um, in in the corporate world. And now where I am in my in my um. A state of growth in my personal business is to expand beyond the education field and move more into organizations that just really need help with um, being able to create structures that are um, efficient and equitable. Right. Okay. And and the reason I ask that is also because, you know, similar to you before going into consulting, it was in corporate. And now I'm seeing a lot of, so I have more corporate clients, but now I'm seeing a lot of schools and, you know, just different industries, nonprofits come in. And I just wanted to get your perspective again, you know, it's Black History Month. There's a lot of awareness around, you know, racial inequity, uh, Black uh, challenges, barriers, and systems in the workplace. So I just wanted to see if you have any thoughts from uh, comparing the the audiences. Is there more... I, I always feel like in the education space, there's more growth or development around the willingness to understand and learn Black history. Do you feel like there is more support of, oh, yeah. for your yeah, work I- in education? <laughs> Yeah, I think that I feel like when it comes to things uh, around like, you know, equity and diversity and really anything around like mindset work and dealing with mm-hmm. bias, it is a part of the work of educators because they have to work with people's kids and they have to work right. with kids kids from all backgrounds. And most of the students in urban public schools are students of the global majority, meaning they are black or brown. Um, and so it is like a part of the work. I feel like other parts um, uh, you know, other fields are a little behind when it comes to that work because it hasn't necessarily, they don't have the same connectivity to people. Like if you right. aren't forced to have, you know, constant interaction right. with 
children and their parents on a daily basis, then it's not as important. I think now that in the corporate world, they are seeing that it is important to have um, and pay attention to um, race and diversity when they're creating and refining structures. Um, but I think that they're kind of a little behind the ball. And so I think that's why now corporate people are reaching out. They're looking for people to help build these DEI initiatives or help them with some mindset and reflective work so that they too can start to be really thoughtful about their clientele and the people who are working within their buildings who um, identify as something other than what is, you know, um, yeah, and what is, you know, kind of the dominating um, right. group. Right. No, and, and, and I agree. I agree. I think it hasn't been required. There has been, there's a lot more, well, maybe because we work in the space, we're seeing the companies that are ready to really put people first and to really be uh, considerate of people's identities and personalities and the belonging conversation. But I don't think it's the norm in the corporate world. I think it's a growth path that hopefully, you know, begin to... Um, see more companies getting behind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, it, I mean, if you, you would think that, I knew that, you know, there was a time like when we were in the pandemic, there was like this explosion almost of like DEI initiatives and everybody wanted it. And now we're seeing kind of a rollback. They're starting to fire people in those positions and oh, yes. not necessarily reach out. But I think that that is like counterintuitive because you're kind of ahead of the game if you are being proactive about, um, creating structures in in a corporate setting that is really sensitive and aware of you know diversity and the funds of knowledge of the people who are coming into work because it's better to do it it's cheaper on the front end right because right. if you if you miss something and then you have to deal with lawsuits you're gonna you know <laughs> it's way more expensive than trying to take care of it in the beginning so I'm hoping that that frame frame of mind is really going to push people you know to yeah. continue to want to build some sound structures and have these conversations in the corporate world. Yeah, and sometimes I think of it as things are just so fluid with people that it's really all about the leader, the leadership who is at the home because sometimes it's almost like people think, I just want to have a win. You know, they keep their views really limited because like, I just want to have a win for me. Yeah. And then I can move on. Somebody else will pick up the slack, right? Like, I don't want to worry about the company 10 years from now. I just want to worry about my win that is ascribed to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that short-sightedness uh, is very limiting in terms of the progress that needs to be done over time. So right. let's bring your background and your career path into it a little bit, because I think this is why when yeah. I think of the theme of this podcast, thriving in intersectionality and, you know, just all of the amazing guests that I bring in, how do you see your background, your upbringing, um, where you grew up and the support you have on? How do you see that, you know, looking back now and looking at how far you've come and what you currently do, do you see that your identities have or have not played a part in the choices, um, the career? I kind of feel like you've been talking about it a little bit, mm -hmm. but I want to also connect it clearly uh, for the audience. Yeah. Um, 
Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like so much, right? I wish I had like 10 hours to tell you, but I think that the, the, the thing that connect, I am, I could, I'm in a helping profession, right? And I, and, and I mean that I have all, the thing that I know that I am is somebody who, whose purpose is really clear. And that is one that is to help regardless of what that is, right? So my upbringing um, from that moment to here, I, you know, my parents were very engaged in, um, in like they were very um, engaged in like and, and took really seriously their civic responsibilities. They held, you know, political planning meetings in our house, NAACP meetings in our house, even Black Panther meetings in our house. Like they were always involved in the community, and I think that that was really framed early for me. Um, and also, I think that even though there was a, neither of my parents were college educated, but there was really a push for me. But there were books everywhere, right? So there was always a push for me to be educated. My father, who I mentioned before, was an entrepreneur. So before I was born, he had a number of successful businesses. You know, he um, had a construction business associated with the real estate business. And um, by the time I was born, he had had a numerous businesses that he had started. So he was like a serial entrepreneur. And in my lifetime, he had a security business that ended up making him millions. So I think that that um, that environment, having somebody in your home who was, you know, not afraid to show you his productive struggle and his failure and his success was great modeling for me. I know now that nothing is going to come without failure. And so I'm not an easy quitter. So I think that is one thing that has really pushed me to where I am today. Like, I don't get discouraged easily from, you know, from no's and from, you know, failure. I think that, when I finally decided to, to to push myself to do the work as an entrepreneur was when, you know, I decided to actually do the work. But I spent a lot of time in the nine to five working, working for other people and not really feeling satisfied in the work that I wanted to do. And I feel and tell me if I'm pushing way past the, the, the you know, the the perimeters of your question. But... No, keep going. That's perfect. <laughs> I think that that growing up in a in a household with an entrepreneur and then growing up in a household with both parents who are who are you know helpers um, really kind of shaped the way that I would move. But I knew when I became a teacher, there was a year where I taught some really affluent students. They were primarily white um, in a very you know well off community, and these kids had everything. And they were like in the seventh grade, taking the SAT and getting like close to perfect scores. And I at that moment was probably at the lowest I've ever felt. Even though the kids were doing well, I knew that they weren't doing well because of anything that I was offering. They were doing well because their parents could afford tutors and, you know, it pour into them in other ways outside of school that would help them to reach wherever it was that they were trying to go. So I made a commitment at that moment that I was going to use my talents and my skills and my credentials and education to help Black children specifically. Um, and that was kind of um, the first time I got really pointed in my decision making about where I would take my career. And so from that point on, any teaching position or leadership position that I took was directly related to that. And then outside work that I did. So, you know, I spent, you know, years as an executive chair for the NAACP, where I was leading education initiatives in multiple states, working with policy on the Congress floor in DC. Those are the kind of things that were really kind of driving the work that I did and still rooted very much into the lived experiences of Black students in America. 
And that has been the through line of the work to where I am today. And now it is my goal to help, you know, not, you know, when I moved into consulting, it was to develop then leaders who would create those kinds of experiences for children. Um, with that skill set, however, I see a greater need, like we were talking about before, to really take these learnings and this knowledge that I have around how to make a functioning organization, whether children are there or not. Like, what does it look like to have a high functioning, efficacious organization? And what do you need to do to get there? And how do you build the capacity of the people in? to get there and what kind of analysis and assessment do you need to do to be there? Um, and then what are the processes that you're going to need to go through to manage this change well to get you to where you want to go has really been kind of this, this um, I guess, pendulum swing in the, in the focus of my work because it did move from being really specific to the life experiences of learners to being um, more um, directed towards leadership and how leadership changes everything, right? In every situation and in every organization. And so that is kind of how my work has got me to where I am today. Yeah, and, and part of why I just kept quiet and let you go is because mm -hmm. I, I think you are touching on something that is really important around the pipeline that we keep talking about. Mm -hmm. And part of why, when we, when we pick these um, as separated initiatives, it's not really as impactful because what you have brought is you brought your background, you brought your passion and your purpose for, you know, education and, and creating experiences for focused on black and minority children, but knowing that these same people are going into the workforce. Yes. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. If we want to make sure the workforce is ready for them, we need people that are passionate about a group of people that maybe might not be dominating the workforce. But as the leadership is building those systems, how are we attracting and retaining and engaging uh, people from all walks of life? So I, I, I love the work you're right. doing. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely right. Because there, there is, I mean, it, we can't have it just stop there, right? We can't have it just stop in K-12 education. There has to be attention to this this you know, beyond there, when people are in the workforce, the same, you know, we're coming up against the same barriers outside of education. And so there has yeah. to be leaders who are willing to do the work to make all, all spaces safe in all organizations. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's the kind of why we have the whole middle rung and workforce uh, pyramids that we talk about, right? Because even in um, colleges, people are still sort of surrounded by a lot of um, resources and support system that cushions some of these things. Uh, but then you transition into the workplace and it's a completely different experience. And it's like you're drowning <laughs> because, yeah. you know, depending on the organization you end up in, you are sort of, you, you lost a whole lot of support if you went to a great school that had great programs and um, support to an organization that is still very far behind. Yeah. in terms of inclusion and and so that that disconnect is hopefully you know the work you're doing the work that you have done is helping to bridge all of that gap right that's the benefit of you know having somebody who is is trained in you know the development of content and the psychology behind you know um 
adult learning and who have you know some insight into instructional pedagogy be in the or be in the corporate world where you know you don't really you know you might in the past have seen somebody in the corporate world be promoted to be a trainer because they do the job well but there's this added piece that yes you might be do well in that job but you may not know how to teach adults and that is something that that is you know um pretty much a skill that people who are educators hold. And so I hope more and more educators will see how they can benefit um, corporations who want to really um, buy into and to invest into training and development of their employees and to do it with people who are, you know, professionals at training and professionals at teaching because you have, you know, garnered that education um, throughout your time as an educator right. and have gone on to learn about adult learning, um, adult learning um, yeah. pedagogies is very helpful in the corporate world. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like this conversation is kind of also leaning into career uh, talent sourcing and recruitment because I had a conversation with somebody with a healthcare background um, who was a nurse practitioner and transitioned to work at a life science innovation company. And she talked about how my experience working with patients directly from different mm-hmm. groups is shaping the work I do with this company now that is not interacting directly with the end user, but they are making products um, that is meant to save lives. Right. So the perspective, uh, the perspective that she brings was very unique because she said, you know, I've worked on the in the healthcare line directly, and I come from a community that maybe is not is being marginalized in terms of healthcare uh, uh, recipients. And so I think when we talk about career and switching industries and companies trying to hire for, we want somebody who has done this in this space mm-hmm. is a little bit of a shift in how you recruit somebody for the role that you're recruiting for and also making the case for consulting, making the case for coaching. Uh, Because sometimes it's not about who you bring in to do the work. It's about who is supporting your team. All right. So um, I think putting all of your career experience, your your journey, um, your current experience working with organizations right now, um, if, you know, for audience of early to mid career professionals who are maybe just getting started in their their job, who are wondering about what path to take. Um, what are some of the experiences from your life that you would, you know, sort of strategies and advice that you would give to um, career professionals who identify with your background, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, advice. So <laughs> I, I think one of the... Um, I, I mentioned before how I had an executive coach have me highlight the thing that I liked best about the job. And I feel like the, that's the best piece of advice I can give to anyone is like really find your purpose, like isolate for yourself, really think about what it is in what you do that brings you joy and then figure out how to monetize that thing, right? Like you want to you want to be joyful in your work, right? You don't want, like, I don't believe that we're, we're meant to be miserable. Like if you are not waking up excited to start the day to do the thing that you want to do, then you should examine that and then isolate what it is that you do want to do and then go after that thing and create a very clear path for yourself, meaning um, 
every decision that I make, I have to say, like, how is this in service of my goal, whatever that goal is, right? Like, for me, I know what my goal is for the end of the year. So I'm saying, how is this in service of the goal that I have set for myself? And if it's not in service of the goal that I've set for myself, then I don't do it. So I think there's something really clear, and it sounds really simple around decision making Mm -hmm. that uh, that I think people really need to just kind of tune into and like, listen to their self and their intuition about how they are going to be spending their time. I think the one thing that really propelled me from being, um, from moving from wanting to do this thing and then to actually do the thing was having a mentor who was able to tell me, so I found a mentor who was where I wanted to be, right? She was doing everything I wanted to do. And in a conversation with her, she was like, you already have all the things that you need. Like you just aren't doing anything with it right so it was like this this reassurance this 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 person telling me you already have everything that you need you just need to shake the fear and and go after the thing that you want and i know that that sounds really simple like really simple advice but i feel like it's the most honest advice is that like you know find the thing that you're passionate about and do the thing but you have to do the thing with you like like hit the ground running and not stop right until it starts to give you the returns that you're seeking yeah yeah absolutely and i'm gonna also take over and and summarize some of the things i i got from your story as well is just um for people to know that every experience you are having is a building block to being able to make that decision right you make the decisions you need to make for each stage but none of that experience is wasted right it will all come together because I'm listening just to the career choices you made, the decisions you made, and just the experiences that you gathered over, you know, a long term to launch something new. And it's all connected, you know, because I feel like sometimes people are like forgetting to learn where you are and appreciate where you are because we're thinking of you know, where's the next trend? Where's the next career I should be going to? Yeah. Um, Right? What do you think? Yeah. And I think not to be in, and don't make it abstract, right? Like I think if there's, I know it's, (laughs) all the things that you hear are the things that have really helped me. So um, I do help organizations with strategic planning and I strategic plan my own business, right? Like it is important to have a clear plan plan with a goal where, you know, the small action steps are the things that are going to get you there. And I think you really highlighted that you have this larger plan. And for that, in in that plan are are action steps that are geared to get you towards your goal. And as you complete each of those small action steps, you're going to feel more and more um, instances of efficacy, right? You're going to feel success each time you bite off each of those small action steps. And before you know it, you're already at your goal, right? And so I don't want to downplay um, in, in how I got to where I am, the idea of planning, because I definitely have relied on um, creating a vision for myself, my business, and creating setting goals and um, smaller goals through action planning. Right. I think if you needed a case in for why you need to work with Courtney. <laughs> you kind of got that too, because I know that planning is actually where a lot of people get stuck. And yeah. um, I, I know I didn't discover like coaching or leveraging coaching. And I also, I didn't discover it until a long-term time. Uh, but I also uh, had to recognize in myself that I needed an accountability Absolutely. driver for mm-hmm. me. Some people can plan themselves and do it. If I don't have any accountability group, 
um, when I'm working towards a goal, there's the possibility that I might not achieve it. Um, even though other people look at me and they're like, oh, you're so focused on this. Sometimes I feel like I, that's because of the communities and the support system that I've built around myself. Absolutely. Um, Right. Yeah. I was, I heard somebody speak more recently and I wish I could tell you exactly where this was quoted from, but it was this idea around, um, communal, are, uh, you know, black people being more communal. And so like, it was almost like this juxtaposition between like therapy and like a group kind of therapy, but it was the idea that that sense of group accountability was the thing that really helped. So it makes sense that, you know, that you and probably and me and probably a lot of other people feel that way are really motivated by the, by the community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else, uh, if you were speaking to professionals, is there anything else you'd like to add before I ask my very interesting final question? <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think more than anything I, I, is to, you know, I spent a lot of years doing what other people thought I should be doing or doing what I thought other people thought I should be doing. I think that um, the most important thing that I've learned about myself is that, you know, you know you better than anybody else. And your happiness is, is, is really derived from within. And so when we're thinking about what we're going to be doing with work um, and for work, and we spend most of our days involved in, you know, a career or work of some kind, just I can't stress enough um, to make sure that that work is something that is, you know, valuable of your time, right? <laughs> like it's like you don't feel like what you're spending eight hours a day doing is a waste of time. And then investing wholeheartedly into that thing until you see the returns that you've planned for. Yes. Thank you. Um, I was going to go to my final food question, but then I remembered I wanted to ask for something um, and feel free to share as much as you want to share. Um, as a mom myself, I didn't have my kids until I was 29, but I remembered uh, one of the things I struggled with is I didn't have a lot of friends that had kids. Mm-hmm. And then they want, the friends that I had, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends who had kids and were trying to build a career. Right. It was almost like you had to choose. And so because as part of your identity intersections, you had made that comment, I'm a mom to an adult, to adult children. Yeah. I just wanted to see if you had any insights around that, especially as we talk about you know, black women, black moms, another yeah. group, right? Mm-hmm. And how it shapes um, career choices, holds back or uh, accelerates, however you handle it. Do you have any insights for that group? Oh, I do. And, I, and it's not really a short question. I think it's a lot, like when my kids were growing, um, so I was a young mom. Um, and so I had my first child. I thought so, because I was like, you look really, really young. And so they were... Um, very much latchkey kids, which is not something that you hear for the, for this generation. Like my generation was the generation that walked themselves to school and came home and were, you know, while our parents were at work. But that was pretty much the situation for my kids. I mean, as a principal, you know, when you are in a position of leadership, you um, you and when you have small children there is a sacrifice. In my case, it was a sacrifice because I was a single mother. Um, And so what that meant for me was like, uh, you know, me working 80, 90 hour weeks and not really having enough time with my kids. And I often say that it's one of my biggest regrets. So I know that that's why I'm like, it's not like a short answer to the question. So I think like my insight would be is that if you are a, a mother of young children who is um, building a business or working in business that um, 
just a reminder that you'll never get that time back, right? <laughs> so they're not going to be young forever. So yes, be ambitious, but do it in with keeping in mind that, you know, your children aren't going to be children forever and um, prioritize them in your climb. Thank you. I love that. And and that 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 was perfect because I I just felt like I was important to kind of highlight uh, because sometimes when we talk about accomplishments and career path, um, forget that that that's a huge role in your life mm-hmm. as well. If you have young kids yes. and and how you manage it and the choices that you make, um, I'm I'm happy those conversations are being elevated now in the workplace to where it's just just oh, you're a mom, you can go for the next project or you right. can go to the next career level. And dads are also, we're trying to bring dads. So it's not just a woman issue. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we know, you know, a lot of the weight is still on the woman. Um, right. Well, thank you for sharing that. All right. My first question, my last question is, is my food question. Food so question. I know I have a vision of playing this back from all of my episodes, but um I usually end with a final question. If you were to share a dish with your coworkers or snack or fruit, what would it be and why did you choose that? I would choose, if I were making it, it would be peach cobbler. Like it's buttery, flaky deliciousness. And it makes me think about my family was um, like my, my mother, you know, had uh, six brothers and sisters, but then they also had like a lot of cousins. Like, you know, we were very, we were, we used to have big family gatherings. It's not like that anymore, but we used to have these huge family gatherings with second cousins, third cousins. And my mom's cousin, who's my aunt, Irene, used to make the best peach cobbler. And I remember when she got to the house, she'd have this, I would just follow her from the front door to the kitchen to somebody like lift up the corner of the foil to look at it. It was so good. And so I like made it a mission like years and years ago to try to like duplicate that peach cobbler. And I can't say that it's as good, but I mean, what I will say that it's as good and between me and my aunt Irene are probably the best two peach cobblers I've ever tasted. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I, and I, I love that you described the the scene because I think sometimes <laughs> even the way we memorialize food is really tied to the experience. It's mm-hmm. not about the, the taste sometimes, mm-hmm. right? It's just the memories it evokes for you. So thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you coming on, Courtney, and sharing your expertise. Thank you for the work you do. And mm-hmm. I will have Courtney's uh, links and socials uh, attached to the details. But if people want to find you, if people want to follow up with you, do you have any quick email website to share yeah you can find me at um my my website is courtney lee online and you can find me on instagram at coach courtney lee or um you can find me on linkedin too under my name courtney torres and i'm looking forward to hearing from you thank you it was nice being here with you i appreciate you no thank you Thank you for joining me, Lola Adeyemo, for these important conversations about the global world of work. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share our weekly episodes with your communities and co-workers. For more resources and upcoming events, visit our website, www.thrivinginintersectionality.com and join our LinkedIn group, Thriving in Intersectionality. Additional links and resources are listed in the show notes of this episode. Thank you.